First John, chapter four. Let's pray before we go through the word together. Lord, we thank you for your goodness to us. You've given us your word so that all of our lives we can know exactly what you have for us. And you can remind us regularly as we apply ourselves to the scriptures what you want for our lives, what you've done for us, how we conduct ourselves in this world, what our purpose is, all these good things. So we ask you to help us now as we study together in Christ's name. Amen. So, we've been talking about Christian love. If you haven't been here for the last months or so, that's because John is talking about it so much. Agape love. Um, we're not done talking about it. He's just getting into it now in 1 John chapter 4. So, it's really his central theme of his ministry, really, is John. He talks about love all the time. So, the last time we were in 1 John, we were discussing where the Christian's capacity for love actually comes from. And it doesn't start with us. Of course, in general, uh, you know, we talk about love in common ways, human ways, shows up in all kinds of human experiences, familial love, married love, friendships, neighborly kindness, deeds, all that kind of stuff. But for the Christian, what John talks about, when he talks about the love of the brethren, our believers loving each other, he's talking about much more than that. He's talking about a spiritual work that God does in us to produce a spiritual purpose. It's God, God working this unique kind of love in us based on the love that God has shown to us in the gift of his son who bore our sins on the cross. So no earthly love can possibly compare to what Jesus did, right? I mean, we can talk about people sacrificing, but um, I don't think anybody's can even imagine what he endured for us. A perfect man and enduring the punishment for the sins of the world. That's quite beyond us. We can see in Paul's language in Galatians chapter 3, Paul said, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. So now, you know, it'd be really a loving thing to do for you to take somebody's curse on you. But most of us wouldn't do that. We'd say, I'm just going to pray that God would remove the curse off of you. But uh, if somebody was cursed with something, some kind of thing going on, to, to say, I'll take that. I'll, I'll just take it on me. Most people wouldn't do that. Now, I don't know. I'm, I'm not talking about curses like they're real, like people are cursing people. But um, Jesus really did take the curse that God put upon humanity. The, the wages of sin is death and hell. And he literally took that punishment upon himself. That's what we're talking about. So when it says he became a curse for us, it wasn't like somebody cursed you with bad, a bad toe, for example, or something. But literally, the, the judgment of God, he took that upon himself. So, um, and we didn't really care that he did that. I mean, in our natural state, apart from God's grace, we would think, oh, thanks a lot, very much, I'd really appreciate that. When we had our own thing going, we weren't that interested. In, in him or we didn't think about honoring him or being thankful for him or even accepting what he did for us. That's how great his love is though that it reached out to us who didn't really care whether he was going to do that or not. And our love for each other is to be based on and deeply rooted in his love for us. So it's that kind of love that he's talking about. Verse 10 of First John chapter 4 he said, And this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us 
and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. We talked about that word propitiation. It's a big word. It means to turn away anger, turn away wrath. He literally turned away God's wrath from us by bearing it upon himself. So God's love towards us is based on nothing that we brought to him. It's not a reward for how wonderful we are. It's, it's a free gift. It's a gift of his grace to us. He loved us when we were quite unlovable, especially in the, in the eyes of a perfect and holy God. Remember how Paul describes us in Romans chapter 5? He says, God loved us when we were ungodly. Christ died for us when we were sinners, when we were God's enemies. That, Paul uses all that language in one place to talk about our condition when Christ died for us. Ungodly sinners, enemies of God. So whether you're a quiet sinner or a loud one, whether you're one in the dark corners of the world or waving flags of rebellion against God, he loved us and sent his son to pay the penalty of our sin. People will die for those they love, but not very many people. In fact, I don't know of anybody that would die for their enemy. But he did. That's how his love is. Jesus came to die for God's enemies. And when the Spirit awakens our hearts, our response to this completely undeserved favor of God is to love Him. And we should love other people that He loved and purchased with His blood as well. We should have an, a, that kind of love for them. His amazing love for us, as unworthy as we are, teaches us by understanding it and by experiencing it in our own hearts exactly what love is and what it actually looks like. Because we look at Jesus and we say, that's love. So to be what God calls us to be, we have to give regular attention. We have to put our mind on the kind of love that Jesus had for us. That's what we should be thinking about on a regular basis. That's one reason we have communion, for example, which we're going to share today, because of that very, that very thing, to remind us of that, to focus our attention on that, to grasp the significance of his love more and more so that we can withhold his love from others less and less. The more we grab it, the less inclined we are to withhold that love for others. We're inspired by him and moved by him to give it to others. So you have to, it's sort of your Christian duty to bask in the love of God, to let it be a part of who you are, to soak it up, to live in it every day, to think about God's love for you every day. Yeah, but you know, things are really hard right now. It's kind of hard to do that. I know. But, but you're his child and he loves you to eternity. So I don't care how hard things are right now. That's the thing to be thinking about. There, there is rest for your soul in the love of God for you. So rejoice in that. All right then. So our text in 1 John chapter 4 is all about God's love and how it changes us. And if you want a really simple formula, let me kind of lay out where we've been and then we'll move forward here. Here's how John presents it. Verse 8, God is love, he says. Chapter 4, verse 8, God is characterized by love. And verse 9, God's love moved him to send his son. By this the love of God was manifested in us that God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. And then, in verse 10, he talks about his son saving us by taking God's wrath unto himself. We just read that verse. And this is love, verse 10, not that we loved God, but that he loved us 
and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So the proper conclusion of all that love on God's part is in verse 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. That's the conclusion. You can soak up God's love and just not let it affect you, but that's exactly not what you're supposed to do. That's, that's the very wrong thing. Just, I'm just basking in God's love. I don't worry about anybody else. No! If you're basking in God's love, it should be overflowing to everybody you know, right? If God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Those are the things we grasp. That's God's love, and that's why we love. And John has much more he wants to say. Verse 12 begins with kind of a surprising statement. He says, no one has seen God at any time. What? You're talking about love and now you're talking about the fact that nobody's seen God? Why is he saying that? Why now? Well, let's think about it. God is invisible, right? He's spirit. Now, he has at times in Israel's history manifested some display of his glory. Not his full glory though. He's never shown anybody that because it would burn you to a crisp if you saw it. Remember Moses? He said, Lord, show me your glory and I'll, it's enough for me. That's all I want. And God told him, you cannot see my face for no man can see my face and live. It's in Exodus 33:20. And if you recall, God did let Moses see a bit of his glory. He kind of like put him in a cleft and passed by and said, I'm going to hold my hand over your face. And then when I'm, you can see my trailing glory. You can live and see that. The Lord also appeared in human form at times or angelic form to interact with human beings. He visited Abraham, remember? Abraham cooked him lunch and he came in a, in a human form at that time. So that wasn't his glory on display. So Abraham could live through that. Um, nobody has seen God in his fullness. And no one should expect to see God in a physical way in the normal course of one's life. No Christian should expect that. I know the TV preachers say they see God all the time. I, I'm not sure they're telling you the whole truth when they, when they do that. I think that they think they're just playing you. But um, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 6, he says, While we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by... Good girl. Not by sight. That's exactly right. So that's the normal Christian experience. We walk by faith, not by sight. So why does John bring this up in a discussion about love? What's he talking about? No one has seen God at any time. Why, why does this, it's a great truth, but why, what does it have to do with agape love, Christian love? Because in the world, love is where other people do see God in us. That's what, it's, that's what he's talking about here. The kind of love that Jesus had, gentle, compassionate, truthful, self-sacrificing, edifying, that love can be seen when God's people live out their Christian commitment to love. When we let God's love overwhelm us and overflow us to others, people see God in that love. They can touch God there. That's why it's such a priority for you and I to grow in that love. That's why a church should be so full of that kind of love that it's unmistakable. There's something different going on with these people. That's what should be happening. 
And you might be a cold heart type person, but God's love needs to flow from you. The words, no one has seen God at any time, that might sound familiar if you've uh, read John's gospel or thought about John's gospel. He uses the phrase the same way in his gospel. Um, John 1, John 1, the beginning, there's this 18 verse prologue before he gets into the story about Jesus. He, he presents who he actually is at the theological introduction of Jesus. Do you remember that? He introduces us to the word, the logos. And he says the word was with God and the word was God and the word became flesh. All of that. And in the last verse of that prologue, John 1.18, before John launches into the story of Jesus, he says this, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. Wow. So people do see God in Jesus Christ, truly, because that's who he is. He's the only begotten God, he says. So Jesus, the only begotten God, has explained God. He himself is God, visible as a man. Everything about Jesus explains God. You look at what Jesus does, you're learning about God. You, you hear what Jesus says, you're learning about God. You catch the spirit of Jesus and his whole life, everything he's committed to, you're learning about God. His life, his words, his love. So too, here, this is John's point in 1 John chapter 4, so too, if we love one another, if that, if that love is from God, it demonstrates that God dwells in us and his love is, he uses the word perfected in us. Look at verse 12. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Now perfected, that word, that Greek word can mean complete or mature or come to fruition. Uh, God's love has achieved its goal. Maybe that's the way to say it. When it is seen in us. That's what it's for. This blossoming of Christ-like love in us is indeed the best visible evidence of Christ in the world. And we think about verse 12, John most certainly has in mind here Jesus' words that were recorded in John's gospel when he said in John 13, 35, by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. All men, that's what he says. So if we pursue love for one another, and we defined love previously as seeking always and everywhere the best for the one that we love, always seeking that, if we do that, then God abides in us and his love has reached, it, reached its maturity. It's complete. It's perfected. It has come to serve the purpose for which God poured it out upon us. So in this, God can be seen in, in uh, the present world. His presence can be seen in our lives. The reality of God is seen in our love for each other. Just let that sit and stay with you. And that should be shaping your behavior in all kinds of ways. Verse 13 now. John reminds us of how we know that we abide in God and He in us. Remember, abide is one of his favorite words. By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us because He has given us of His Spirit. Okay, so by this we know, he says, so John is telling us how we know that God is in us and with us. It's by the present and active ministry of the Holy Spirit that we know that. 
He is the one who witnesses to our spirit that we are children of God. So the Holy Spirit's doing all kinds of things in us. He's convicting us of our sin. He's directing us to continually trust in Christ. He points us to the worthy walk that we're supposed to walk in the name of Christ. He points us to the love of Christ that should be manifest in our attitudes, our words, in our lives. A Christian knows the Holy Spirit is in him or her if our hearts are moved to love God, that's how we know. If we have a true desire to please God, that's how we know. If we're truly thankful for the salvation that Christ purchased for us. If we take God's word over all the ideologies and belief systems of the world and we trust in that above all things, that's how we know. The Holy Spirit does those things. And if we care about the faith and growth of our brothers and sisters in Christ, that's Christian love. And then we know the Holy Spirit is in us. We might not be super Christians. We're not talking about that. Because none of us are sinless. But we are talking about knowing that we belong to God. And how we know that is by the Holy Spirit through these things that he manifests and works in us. John likes to remind people, believers, of all the spiritual blessings that we have in Christ. The aspects of our salvation. You know, we say, well, I believe and, that, and then I'm saved. And that's true. Salvation is by faith. But salvation is not mere faith. By that I mean it comes with all kinds of wonderful things with it. Salvation, faith alone justifies you before God. That's how you're forgiven. But salvation itself includes all kinds of things that come with that. John wants us to remember the indwelling of the Holy Spirit of God. The, the whole idea of abiding in God and Him abiding in us. Why does he use that language? Because it's a relationship that we have with God. It's not, oh I believe in Jesus, I'm saved, and I'll never have to think about that again. Hardly. It's no. I believe in Jesus. Jesus is incredible. He's wonderful. I love to think about Him. I love to know about Him. I love to share Him. Never live your Christian life as though God is just the object of your faith. Because there's so much more to being a Christian than that. He's our Father. He's our friend. He's our joy. He's our strength. And we're to live our lives in an active, ongoing, genuine relationship with God. With the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is our King. I love to think about the fact that Jesus is a king. I think we just kind of say, yeah, the Messiah, he's a king. It's, you know, as a, as, a, as a child of God, as a saved person, as a person for whom Christ shed his blood, you're one of the king's intimates. You ever hear that expression? An intimate of the king are the people that can walk in and talk to the king whenever they want to. They're his friends. There aren't very many people like that in an earthly kingdom because how many friends can a king have? Well, everybody wants to be. But he knows who his intimates are, the people that he's given permission to talk to him anytime they want to. to they, they, they can stand when he's, when he's standing. They, don't, they, don't have, they can sit when he sits. They, they, they're his intimates. They, can, they don't have to rest on all the super formalities. Well, Jesus is our king and you have direct access to him at any time. You can communicate with him at any time and he's eager to listen to you. He governs everything and he governs everything for your good because you're his intimate friend. You have the great privilege to be in his service. It's a great privilege 
That's not something King's intimate friends act all proud about because if they're really his friends, they're concerned about him and his well-being. But they have his attention anytime they want it. They call him up, Your Majesty, I've got some issues I'd like to talk to you about. Of course, you're the king's intimate, right? God is like that. He's a king and he's, we're, we're on intimate terms with the king of the universe. Just think about that. And he has plenty of time for you. He's not limited. There's no line. He's infinite. You can go right to him. Spend time with him. Pray. He wrote a book. Read it. <laughs> Let it shape you. Let it shape your mind and heart. Give him time and attention. Let him direct you into this great task. The great task is loving the brethren. Because that's how God is seen in the world. Now in verse 14, I think John is speaking as an apostle when he says we. Usually he's talking about we like all of us. Uh, all the believers he's writing to. But verse 14 harkens back to the way he started the letter. And when he started the letter, he was talking about himself as an apostle and one of the apostles. Remember how he started the book, First John 1.1? 1, 1, what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. And the life was manifested and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. That's how the book begins. What a great way to start a letter. That's the apostolic witness. They were witnesses of the life and the ministry and the teaching of Jesus, the person of Jesus and he calls him the word of life there. They witnessed his ministry. John, actually, of all the apostles, actually witnessed Jesus die on the cross. They all witnessed the resurrection of Jesus. And they all witnessed the ascension of Jesus. All of the apostles. So it's interesting that he makes a similar statement in verse 14. Why bring it up? Well, verse 14 is setting up verse 15. Okay? So let's read them together. Verse 14. We have seen and testify that the Father, so the we is... The apostles, we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. And now he's going to broaden it out. Whoever, verse 15, confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So he's really clear there. This is what we know to be true because we personally experienced it. Eyewitness testimony, the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Then verse 15, whoever. The Son is the Savior of the world. He provided the basis of salvation for everyone. For whoever. The death that he died, he died to sin. The price that he paid was not lacking. It's sufficient for the whole world. And the benefits of his sacrifice, the application of his death for any of us, is dep that's dependent on faith. To take that sacrifice and have it applied to you, you have to believe. You have to, put, you have to trust yourself to Christ. You have to put your faith in Him. You have to live for Him. 
And in verse 15, John uses the word confess, which is really interesting, which often stands in for faith in the New Testament. It's, it's an expression of faith. I confess that this is true. The Greek word for confess is really interesting. It's homo, which is same, and lego, which is speak, to speak. So it means to say the same. That's what it literally means. A simple word is what it means. But it signifies uh, what it came to mean in the usage is agreement or to confirm something or to consent to something. So in a context, a context like this, it means I affirm to be true. I affirm to be true for me. If I confess that Jesus is the Son of God, then God abides in you and you in Him. So obviously that's not mere words when you say that, well, I confess, I I acknowledge that he's the Son of God. I just don't want to have anything to do with him. It's not that. It's, it's of the heart, right? It's true. He really is the Son of God. And I'm giving myself to him. That's what the confession is. Sort of like Romans chapter 10, verse 9, where Paul says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Remember that verse? For with the heart a person believes, Paul said, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth, he confesses resulting in salvation. So the way to salvation is really simple. A true acknowledgement that Jesus is the Son of God, the unique Son, the only begotten Son of God, as John describes him in verse 9, the only begotten God. So he's one of a kind. There's only one Son of God. There's only one Son of God by nature. And that's Jesus. He actually is God by nature. Now, of course... The Bible says we become sons and daughters of God by adoption, right? Adopted into God's family. And because if he was human, um, the book of Hebrews actually calls us brothers of Christ. We have a brotherly relationship with him because of his humanity. But we are creatures. He is not a creature. We will always be creatures. He's never been a creature. So he's the son, the eternal son, Christ is not like us. Jesus is the only begotten Son. He's a Son by nature. He's eternally the Son. In fact, He's the creator of all things. We read the creed on Christmas, uh, the Nicene Creed, begotten, not made. That's actually the, the ancient phrase in the old creed. Paul actually says it much more strongly in Colossians chapter 1, verse 16. Let me read that section for you. He's talking about Christ. He says, for by Him... All things were created, both in the heavens and in the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. That's not true of you. Or me. Or Charlton Heston. Or anybody. It's not true. But it is true of him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He's also the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Now, this is the humanity, the resurrection. So that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. And through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Colossians chapter 1, you should read that sometime. It's pretty overwhelming. So the Son is God. And he does all that's needed for salvation for us. Now remember, John wrote this letter 
in part in opposition to the Gnostic heretics. We used to talk about that a lot in the early part of the letter. They said, we need secret knowledge to be delivered from this prison house of our bodies. That was their doctrine. They said, we don't have a sin problem. We have an ignorance problem. That sounds so modern. Now let's not talk about sin and things. Let's just talk about knowledge because that's what we really need. That's, that's where they were 2,000 years ago. Not too surprisingly, the claim that all we really need is knowledge is one of the most ignorant statements ever made in the world. I don't have a sin problem. I just need more knowledge. Oh, ignorance. In this case, it's not bliss. No, we really do have a sin problem. And Jesus really fixed it. He fixed it. If we have him as our king and our savior, he's taking care of our sins. So the simple gospel, the, the way to salvation is to confess Jesus. All that needs to be done is to confess him because he did the work. He's the one that bore the sin, not you. And we receive it by coming to him, by trusting in him, by confessing that he is the God who made the world and the one to whom we owe our allegiance and our love. And he's the one who purchased our salvation on the cross. So now, let's keep going. Verse 16, John takes this great truth of Christ as the Savior of all who confess him and he ties it back into this theme of love. So look at the first, first part of verse 16. We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. Now the we is everybody. That's usually the we in 1 John. So he's moving off of just the apostles. He wanted to set that basis. Now he's talking about all of us there. All believers in Jesus. We now know through the gospel, the good news of God's great saving love. And by his grace we believe it. It's because of his favor towards us that we believe it. So the origin of this great saving work, that's what he's talking about here. The origin of that is God's love. God didn't coldly determine to save us. It was his great love that moved him to send Christ to die for our sins. God's love. Love is the cause of his sending the Son into the world to save us. Love moved God to ordain the whole plan of salvation, the plan of redemption. Therefore, anyone who confesses Jesus can say with absolute confidence, God loves me. And you can say it because it's not your worthiness that makes it true. It's his grace. That makes it true. So if you, if you always tie your feeling about God loving you to your performance, you're going to go up and down with that thing. That's not the basis of it. It's that he sent Christ for you. And if you confess him, you can say God loves me. That's very comforting. When the hard times come, that's the time to cling to that. John pointed out over and over, this love toward us should fill us and spill over to everyone else. So the second half of verse 16 says, God is love and the one who abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. So the love among God's people comes from him. It's the, sort of the fruit 
on the vine, if you will, if you want to put it that way. As you abide, his love flows into you and it changes you. You become more gentle. You become more humble. You become less concerned with yourself. It changes you to become others-oriented. You cling to stuff less and you start thinking about how you can bless other people more. You become happy to listen to those people that need an ear and you're happy to listen to them and listen truly and want to bless them. Your prayers are more about other people than about yourself. Those are the things that start to happen to you. So the question of your life becomes, as God's love is poured out on you, the question of your life becomes, how can I bless other people? That's the motive driving reality of your life. And that's how you measure your walk with God. How you doing? How much do you feel that way? How can I bless other people? Too many people, I've got to say, and some people in our circles, I don't mean here, but in our circles generally, some people measure their walk with God by doctrine. I am faithful to the doctrines of the faith. Now, is that important? That's really important. That's foundationally important. Doctrine is essential. It's very, very necessary to understanding love as God is bringing it to us. But love is where doctrine leads. All these great truths are taking us to God's love and then moving us to love like he loves, to love other people. That's what it's for. If it doesn't lead you to love, you've missed the point of doctrine. Ever know a doctrine person that's just angry all the time? I have. I say, like, where's the love, man? You're always mad at somebody. If it doesn't lead you to love, you don't get the doctrine. You haven't, you haven't taken it in. Because that's what it's really about. Doctrine leads to love. Love for God first, always. Then a very real love for God's children and the people in the world too. Especially our brothers and sisters in Christ though. Especially for them. Okay, we've arrived at verse 17. And here we delve deeper into the perfection of love that John mentioned in verse 12. How does the perfection of love relate to fear? For some of us, fear is a big challenge. And I think I heard somebody whispered over there, but we'll take it up next time. <laughs> Am I that predictable, Freddie? Mm. Let's pray. Let's pray. Father, as we reflect again on the great gift of your Son, our Savior, we grow more and more in the love you had in sending him. And the love he had in, in taking in the great task of redemption. Keep us abiding. Don't let us drift away from you. Call us back every day. Call us back always to our daily walk in Christ. May it be founded on the truth and expressed in a love that comes only from knowing Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.